Well, thank you, David. Thanks, everybody. Lovely to be with you this morning, and great for me to have uh, two days in Bradford as part of the Bradford Keswick. Um, in case you're not familiar uh, with Keswick and Keswick Ministries, um, Keswick is a small town in the Lake District, as you probably know. The sun is shining most of the time up there, and uh, there's been a, a summer event for three weeks um, for 144 years, I think it is now, um, and uh, it... it began as a small event on the lawns of the vicarage at St. John's in Sick and has grown now to three weeks, attracting about 15,000 people from different parts of the world, different parts of the UK, different denominations, all ages. Uh, and there's a great program for kids and for young people and adults too. It's free of charge. You're very welcome to come. Uh, it's the last two weeks of July, tipping into the first week of August. Uh, you find where you want to stay, um, but all of the events are open and you can come for a day or a week or all three weeks. We'd love to see you. And that has spawned, not through organization, but I think as a move of the Spirit, has resulted in lots of other uh, smaller Bible conventions and uh, 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 conferences and, and similar uh, Bible events around the world. Um, here in the UK, there are about 35 to 40 events, rather like the Bradford Keswick, um, just maybe a weekend, some for a week, some in holiday destinations, new ones starting up, a new one, Keswick Ayrshire, which begins in a couple of weeks' time uh, for all the churches in, in that part of Scotland. But also around the world, there are 10 locations in Japan, for example, which have Keswick events in different cities, bringing evangelical churches together in what is quite a tough uh, part of the world. The same in uh, Africa, in Malawi, in uh, different parts of Europe. There's one in Hungary alongside Lake Balaton uh, in the summer, which attracts about a 1,000 Hungarian believers. Uh, New Zealand, they have their camp um, over New Year in December. Um, there are uh, similar events in Australia and Canada and the U.S. and uh, India and uh, other parts of the world. So it's a very big family, um, and it's not a big organization. It's simply initiatives by believers in each country and across the churches in seeking to encourage people around three things, hearing God's word, becoming like God's son, serving God's mission. That's what the Keswick movement is for. Well, that's enough by way of uh, um, propaganda, publicity. Um, you're very welcome in the summer if you can, and you're welcome to participate at the uh, Bradford Keswick. And thank you very much to this church, to David and others for uh, being part of the team that helps uh, Keswick operate. Well, uh, as David's already said, we're looking at first things first. Uh, the importance of, the, of being clear about our priorities as individual Christians and as churches. And uh, we're looking at a range of Bible passages over these few days, uh, particularly to uh, see what it means to have core priorities. Yesterday we were looking at what it means to be first things first in our Christian service, what motivates us, what really matters in our Christian living. Uh, tomorrow we're going to look at first things first in Christian fellowship, uh, how do we live together in the, the, uh, some of the comments Vicky made about how we live as a church or churches together? Well, we'll look at Acts 15 with some great lessons from there. And then on Tuesday uh, evening, if you're able to come, we're looking at first things first in Christian growth, the centrality of God's word and God's spirit in helping us to grow up uh, as believers. This is a great story of God's people in, uh, in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 8. This morning, uh, do uh, turn to your Bibles if you have one, and we're going to read these first seven verses from 1 Timothy 2, where Paul gives us the first 
priority for local church worship. And when I read this some while back, I was surprised at what he said was the first priority in Christian worship. And you'll spot it as we read these verses together. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Well, I wonder if anybody uh, in the congregation this morning can remember when NASA put the first men in orbit around the Earth. Um, Not many of us, I expect. I was only seven years old at the time. I can't really remember it. But I read recently that there was a discussion amongst those first astronauts who were going to be circling the Earth, a discussion between the astronauts and the NASA officials. In fact, it was a disagreement because the astronauts wanted to have a window in the capsule that was going to go around Earth. They wanted to have great views of the planet The NASA officials, you know, health and safety, they said, no, we shouldn't have uh, windows, it won't be wise. But in fact, the astronauts won. And uh, in, in a recent book, it describes how those early astronauts were amazed as they looked out of the window. In fact, one cosmonaut from Russia explained how startled he was by the experience of seeing Mount Everest. And it was so small, he could hardly see it. And then a Saudi astronaut who was up on another flight said, the first day or two, we all pointed to our countries. The third or fourth day, we were pointing to continents. And by the fifth day, all we were aware of was the Earth. And the book is called Global Citizens. It's a book which is trying to encourage people. It's not a Christian book. It's encouraging people to think globally to have a view of the world which is not simply my life or my culture or my family, but to have a global view. And uh, I very much like that concept of thinking globally. And in actual fact, you discover this is exactly what Paul is writing about in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He suggests that having this kind of wide vision is essential for every local church. I think most of us would agree with that. It's, it's likely that a lot of churches, I come from a, a church in the center of Oxford, and it has a busy program and we've got all kinds of things going on. It's very easy to get locked in to your own work and life and program, almost to forget that there is a world outside. Fantastic, you have a Friday evening committed to pray for this church and beyond. It's fantastic, we've already st- stood this morning to pray for God's people in Indonesia. So Paul is saying, don't just lock into your own life and congregation. Pray, think globally. Of course, 
Paul was writing to Timothy. Timothy was uh, trying to help the Ephesian church. They had all kinds of problems. It would have been very easy just to have concentrated on solving the problems within their own local church. But Paul says, no, when you begin to pray, do you notice how he begins? First of all, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's why I chose this passage, thinking about first things first. And the obvious feature of this passage, when you uh, look at it, is this repetition on the idea of all. I've just read uh, verse 1, prayer for all people and all kinds of prayers. If you go down to verse 4, God desires desires all should be saved. And then verse 6, Jesus gave his life for all. And I suppose we could all add verse 7, the final verse in this section, where Paul says, my mission is to the Gentiles. In other words, to everyone, to all people, to all nations. So Paul's emphasis here, you see, is not for some special in-group or some special elite. This little passage addressed to a local church is about God's concern for all, God's passion for all men and women. So we discover the first priority, first things first, in Christian worship in a local church is to do with God's saving purposes for the whole world. So just uh, this morning, two bullet points, two priorities, if you like, that come out of this. Here's the first one. Pray for all. It's very simple, but that's exactly what Paul says. First, first things first, Pray for all. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I, I have a little notebook, and uh, I, I write down prayer, prayer things, prayer requests, maybe things I've got to pray for. And uh, usually when we do that, we find that we are at the middle there, and, and uh, our family concerns and the people we love, we pray for them, and then gradually we go out in circles further and further out. But you'll notice what Paul does when he writes to Timothy here and to the Ephesian church. He's, he does it the other way around. So right at center, he is concentrating on the world out there. Uh, Notice the different words he uses in verse 1. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, but especially, he says, for rulers, for governments. Now, this is very important, as we'll see, because it can affect the life and the freedoms and the worship and the mission of local churches. So verse 1 shows that the first priority is that our prayers must be global. They must be universal, big prayers. Pray for all. Um, I, for many years uh, with my family, were, were in Exeter, a lovely church in the center of Exeter. And there were two uh, Devonian men who used to pray in our prayer meetings. And I often quote them. This was Monday night prayer meeting. The first man was called Mr. Cook. And uh, he would stand up and he'd begin to pray. And we knew he would be praying all around the world, country to country. It lasted about 20 minutes, his prayers. We called them Cook's Tours, actually. He was <laughs> praying all around the world. And the second man, also a Devonian, used to use this phrase, which amused us, uh, but he, it was quite frequently used in his prayers. Lord, we pray for all of the people in the uninhabited parts of the world. All the people in the uninhabited parts of the world. And uh, the Lord knew what he meant, and we knew what he meant. Uh, He had a heart to pray for God's people uh, all around the globe. 
Well, why does that kind of prayer matter? Why pray for all? Why is that central to our worship? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I've mentioned one already. There's a practical reason, he says it in verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Uh, In Paul's days, you probably know, there was the Roman rule, and that allowed for uh, the gospel to be proclaimed across quite wide territories. Peace over a huge area, it created an environment for uh, liberty, for Christian witness and for Christian mission. Now, let me ask a question. Um, You might be like me, tempted to complain about politicians, but to what extent do we pray for governments and kings and local authorities. Um, As Paul says, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. In many parts of the world, we've prayed for Indonesia this morning, and this is true, that the local circumstances, the government, the attitude of local authorities, the social, political environment, radically impacts the local church. Um, I've worked for many years with Langham Partnership in different parts of Africa and Asia and Latin America. And uh, in, in situations like the Democratic Republic of Congo or the Central African Republic or in Nigeria or in Zimbabwe or in China or in Indonesia, uh, the Christian community is under pressure. In fact, 200 million evangelicals, that's people like us, Bible people and gospel people, 200 million Christians in 35 countries, are suffering direct and hostile persecution. And it's increasing all around the world. Uh, The Pew Research Center says now that there's harassment amongst Christians, which the government doesn't do much about. Harassment, that means you may be a believer and therefore you don't get a job or you can't go to university if you're a young person, or you're under pressure, you can't get property for a church building. That level of harassment in now 95 to 100 countries of the world. Huge high proportion of countries where the church is under pressure. And so Paul says, we need to pray. We need to pray for all and pray, he says, for governments and for kings and rulers, pray social administration and for leaders, and so must we. So it's a practical reason. But the heart of this passage is actually to do with a theological reason, actually a cluster of theological reasons. It's presented in remarkable statements which are all to do with God's concern for all, why we need big hearts and big prayers. And there are three reasons which he gives. Very simply, first, there is one God. You'll see he says that in verse 5. For there is one God and mediated between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So his point is, if there's one God and he's the one creator... He's the one redeemer for all men and women, irrespective of their background, then that is the reason why we pray for all, that they may come to know this one God. If there's only one God, the offer of salvation must be available to all. It's actually uh, a foundation truth in the Christian faith and in the Jewish faith. You go back into the Old Testament, this is what they kept on affirming. There is one God. Uh, Paul makes the point in Romans, here's the passage in uh, Romans 3, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God. If there's one God, then he is, by definition, the God concerned, the God who loves the God to whom we are accountable, all men and women, irrespective 
of gender or ethnicity or nationality or culture. One God means he is concerned for all. And when Paul was preaching in Athens in Acts 17, he did exactly the same. He was talking about the Lord God who made the world and everything in it, all the heavens and the earth. He commands all men and women everywhere to repent. There is one God, Paul says in this passage, one universal God. So everyone's created by him. Everyone is loved by him. Everyone is accountable to him. Then he gives another reason. It's in the next verse, verse 4, and that is there is one purpose. Quite read, am I right? Yes. Uh, God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul here is concerned to underline God's purpose, his concern, is for all. Uh, people who write commentaries on passages like this suspect that probably in the church in Ephesus there was some kind of heresy which suggested that the gospel was just for a special elite group, special understanding for people who, uh, who have been enlightened. And if that was going on, this kind of inner circle who knew everything in the church, Paul couldn't have been clearer. God's compassion, God's concern is for everybody. Whoever they might be, whatever their IQ, whatever their background or education, God wants all men and women to be saved. And it's underlined uh, uh, in the way he uh, writes it, actually. Here's here's, uh, uh, verse 4. You know, on your laptop, you can embolden certain words for emphasis. You can just make sure people get the point by emboldening the, the font. Well, Paul didn't have that on his laptop, but he, what he did was repeat words. Repetition was a way of underlining it. So he says it here, God, our Savior, wants everyone to be saved. That's the force of God's purpose, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, he's not saying here, everybody will be saved, because he uses this little phrase, you notice, to come to a knowledge of the truth. It means to come to know Jesus, to come to know the gospel. That's the only way to come to know God and to be saved. God's loving purpose, though, is that everybody should hear that message and everybody should respond. That's why I put up on, on the screen the, a similar idea from Peter. It's 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He is patient with everyone, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So there's one God, there is one purpose, and then he, of course, in the well-known phrase, thirdly, there is one mediator, verse 5. One mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all people. Now, it's quite important in these very short verses to see the progression Because there are quite a lot of people in Bradford who believe there is one God. But they don't know this God because they haven't encountered the one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus. So Paul is putting that very clearly. That assertion, there is one God, but there is only one way to know him, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. In fact, it's a pretty good uh, way of describing heresies or false teaching because they nearly always insert other mediators. This is what uh, Mike Griffiths said. He was a missionary uh, uh, some years ago. False teaching often loves to invent extra mediators. Moses, that's what they did. uh, uh, Paul talks about that in Galatians. Or angels, 
supernatural powers, saints, the Virgin Mary, Muhammad, Hindu avatars, Buddhist bodhisattvas, different mediators. People say, if I'm going to get to know God, I've got to go through these different routes. So Paul makes it absolutely clear, Christ Jesus is the universal mediator. There is only one mediator between God and humankind, and that is Jesus himself. The message centers on him. The message is all about him. The message is finally accomplished by Jesus. God's purposes of salvation, Paul is saying, are Christocentric. They are focused on Jesus himself. Um, I don't know that Oxford is, is more international than Bradford. You have a huge mixed population here, which is wonderful. And so do we in our city. And uh, we have people from different religions, of course, and quite a lot of international students arrive uh, in my city and um, often are quite interested to talk about the Christian faith. And so we set up meals in people's homes and opportunity to come and uh, visit an English home and talk about Christianity. And uh, one uh, postgrad arrived uh, and said he'd like to come for a meal with us. So Margaret and I had him in our home. And then he said, I'd love to see what your church is like. I've never been to a Christian church. So we said, sure, you can come. When would you like? Next Sunday. So Sunday morning, and uh, we have several services, and this was a, a family service he said he'd like to come to, which is a little bit chaotic and uh, lots of noise, lots going on. And about 10 minutes into the service, he looked over to me. Remember, he's a Hindu background. And he said, so which God do you worship exactly? Which of the many gods do you worship? And so in the middle of all that was going on in the service, all I could say to him was, well, We'd like to encourage you, look to Jesus. Look at Jesus Christ. That's what Christians would want to say. Being a Christian is a person who's united to Jesus Christ. Being a church is a family of people with Christ at the center. That is what Paul is saying. One mediator. Now, it's not at all uncommon, as I mentioned last night, for us now to be criticized for saying that. Uh, we live in a culture where it's okay for you to be a Christian if you want to be. It's very nice that you could meet here, church on the way. Why not? But don't absolutize it. Don't say this is for everybody. Don't say Jesus is the savior of the world. That arrogant claim, people suggest, is something which Christians should no longer say. But verses like this, as well as the verses we looked at Last night in 2 Corinthians 4, underline that we shouldn't be intimidated by the pluralism of our day. We should hold to the truth of what the Bible says, namely Jesus is the one mediator. He's the savior of all. Now, of course, we have to do this with humility. We do it with, sense with sensitivity, but we're seeking to introduce other people to the one Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is very clear it is the man, Christ Jesus, the one who came to represent all humankind, the man, Christ Jesus, the one who gave his life as a ransom. In other words, he was the one who is the mediator. We associate the idea of ransom with the mediator, don't we? Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, which bought us our freedom, which set us free from God's judgment, the one mediator between God and man. Let me read you something that a, a, a colleague of mine who worked in Langham Partnership, uh, John Stott, uh, said. Nothing is more important for the recovery of the church's mission, where it's been lost, or its development, where it is weak, than a fresh 
clear and comprehensive vision of Jesus Christ. When he is demeaned, and especially when he is denied in the fullness of his unique person and work, the church lacks motivation and direction, our morale crumbles, and our mission disintegrates. But when we see Jesus, it is enough. We have all the inspiration, incentive, authority, and power we need. It's a beautiful expression of why Paul says, one God, one purpose, one mediator. So Paul is saying, this is why we should pray for all. First of all, he says, pray for all around the globe for these reasons. There is one God, one purpose, and one mediator. So before I finish with just one other simple bullet point, it's always good to ask, isn't it, well, how does that impact me? Am I really playing my part in this priority in my own life and in Christian worship and as a congregation? And I already know uh, this is part and parcel of what this church stands for. It's very easy to be distracted from prayer, not to give our energies to pray. Uh, sometimes it might be because uh, we, we think it, it doesn't really work. Or we might think, well, I haven't got enough information. And the devil will find all kinds of ways to distract Christians from praying, to anesthetize the Christian community. Why is there so little prayer for the cause of global mission or for our fellow believers who are under pressure around the world? Well, you'll notice the urgency of what Paul writes here. And I think the reason why I don't pray as much as I should is because these big reasons haven't always entered my heart and mind. This passion of God, the one God, with the one purpose and the one mediator, that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. So prayer will bring about God's purpose. Actually, it is happening all around the world. It's fantastic that we are now part of the fastest-growing family on the planet. There will be more Christians in churches in mainland China this morning, than all of the uh, Christians in the United Kingdom, Europe, and North America combined. If you think of uh, the Anglican churches, uh, uh, there are more uh, more believers in the Anglican churches in Nigeria this morning than in all of the Anglican churches in the United Kingdom, Europe, Australia, and North America combined. Massive growth. It is fantastic to see the way in which now 75 to 80% of the world's Christians are now in the global south, as we call it, Africa, Asia, Latin America. We are the only continent where the church is not really growing. Um, But this kind of growth has all come about, Paul is implying, through the prayers of local congregations. Therefore, we want to play our part as God's church expands, something like 2,000 new churches being planted every week in Africa and elsewhere. That is the reason why Paul says, pray for all. The final thing is proclaim to all. Verse 7, and for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, my mission, and actually your mission, he says to us all, is to herald this good news, and not just to one group, but as I've already underlined several times, to all people, all nations, to the Gentiles, he says. That's the force of the logic of these verses, if you follow them through. The call to go to everyone, to proclaim the good news to everyone, 
arises from our understanding of God's character and God's purpose. Well, we've seen there's one God. His one purpose is that everyone should be saved. He sent the one mediator, the Lord Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, the connection is there, for this purpose I was appointed. And he gives several words there to describe his own life, but some people see it's like the stages of missionary work in a way. He says, for this purpose I was appointed a herald. Well, a herald is someone who tells the message. He's the evangelist. And I was an apostle, that's the church planter, and I'm a teacher. That's the one who encourages the church, builds it up, encourages discipleship. Maybe those are the the sequences of, of the way in which the gospel advances and churches are formed. And he says, I'm telling the truth in verse 17, possibly because there were uh, people in the congregation in Ephesus who weren't at all convinced about this idea of having to tell the gospel to the Gentiles. No, Paul says, it's for everybody. I'm telling the truth. All people need to be prayed for and need to hear this message. That's our calling, to proclaim to all. Um, For many years, actually, I still work with IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And uh, when Margaret and I were working uh, in in the European universities, uh, a small team uh, worked with us to set up student teams, people who would maybe take a year out from their studies or go for a gap year, uh, in different universities across Europe and across the former Soviet Union, as it was then. Uh, About a 1,000 Young people joined these teams. And quite a few young people decided to be on teams in Siberia to go to universities in uh, that part of the Russian Federation. And one of them was from our city, Oxford. He just finished his degree, got a very good degree in economics, but he decided, no, I'm going to go and uh, work in Yakutsk. Do you know Yakutsk? It's in Siberia. It's uh, way up in the Arctic Circle. Um, There are no road or rail connections. You can only fly in there. It's uh, the heart of, at that point, it was the heart of the Baha'i Christian, uh, Baha'i faith. Uh, Relatively few Christians there. It was cold, drops to about minus 60 in the winter. It was ugly. It was grey. There was very little support. So when he came back after two years, uh, because some people did come back from Siberia, I'm pleased to say, (laughs) and when when he came back, I said, why why bury yourself there? I mean, you know, in Oxford first, in a Economics, you could get a reasonable job. Uh, going to Yakutsk is har- hardly the place for career advancement. And he quoted 2 Corinthians 5. He said, Christ died for all. That's why he went. To work amongst desperate young people in the University of Yakutsk who needed to hear the good news of Jesus. Christ died for all. You see, it's exactly the same kind of logic as these verses. He had discovered... One God, one purpose, one mediator. And now it was the joy of telling others, of seeing young people come to faith in Christ. Well, there'll be all kinds of ways in which we too can be involved. I I can tell from your notice board, you're praying for people in other parts of the world. Uh, I tell from your commitment to pray uh, that you want this church to have these kinds of uh, universal prayers and commitments. First things first. So um, maybe there are all kinds of, uh, oh I'm sorry I'm going backwards, shouldn't do that, let's go forwards, Uh, all kinds of ways in which this can happen. I don't know if you're a member of a prayer group, 
Um, I've joined uh, uh, prayer groups on, for particular countries sometimes. When I was young, actually, I joined a group to pray communist Europe. And I, I'm sure that's why the Lord pushed me into working in some of those countries. It sort of sowed the seeds in my heart for what really should should be happening by God's purposes. And uh, maybe you can um, sign up for a mission agency and pray, adopt a country, uh, pray for North Korea. We should all pray for North Korea right now with everything that's happening. There are seventy to 80,000 Christians in work camps in North Korea. So when it's on the news, let's pray for God's people in, in that very, very difficult atheist state. Maybe... Uh, uh, we can find out from mission agencies about what's happening. Maybe there's a summer program we can connect with if we're younger. Um, some of us are older, and you probably have heard of the new mission movement. It's called Goals in Extra Time, where you can, even if you're uh, retired, and you're, there are people now in their 60s, their 70s, actually people in their 80s who are committing their time uh, now that they're retired to serve the Lord in all kinds of ways. It might be across the street. It might be across the world. But Paul says, pray and proclaim. Um, some of us, one final word about this, um, some of us might be like my father-in-law. He uh, had a muscle-wasting disease which developed uh, when he was in his 40s. And he lived in our home uh, for quite a few years because he couldn't move. He was uh, up until, until he died, and he was 86 when he died. Uh, for 30 years or more, he'd hardly leave the house. But... He had next to his, he sat in his chair, he called it his electric chair, it was one of those chairs, you know, the rising chairs that get him back onto his feet. So he would sit in his electric chair, and on the table next to him there would be missionary magazines and letters and emails which we printed out for him from people all around the world. At that time I was travelling all over the place, but I often used to think, well, who's doing most for the cause of mission? I'm sure it's Ben, sitting there day by day, praying for all praying for God's people. So some of us here may not be the people to travel. We may not be the people to go to another country, but we can do what Paul says as a first priority. Here's the summary, if I've got the right screen. First things first in our church life, because of one God, one purpose, one mediator, we are to pray for all and to proclaim to all. And it's interesting that this has both a sense of worship and a sense of mission, isn't it? Um, let me just remind you of Psalm 96, and it begins, Declare his glory among the nations. I was in a discussion once where someone said, Is that worship or is that mission? Declare his glory, well, that's worship. Among the nations, well, that's mission. That's evangelism. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking to a local church. It's Sunday morning service. It is worship. That's what we've been doing this morning. But we're declaring God's glory in worship and we're declaring God's glory in proclaiming the gospel. It's called doxological evangelism, if you want the theological term. It is worship and mission that belong together. Um, here's my final slide, a definition of what it means to be a global Christian, a global church. This is what David Bryant said. A world Christian is someone who's so gripped by the glory of God and the glory of his global purpose that he chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. The burning prayer of the world Christian is, let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we've already expressed to you our gratitude that we are free in this country to meet together, to worship you, to declare your praise, even on our streets also, although it's getting tougher, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privileges of being in this country. Thank you too for the privileges of being in the cities in which we live, not least here in Bradford, where you've brought people from all kinds of uh, corners of the world to live here. Thank you for this wonderful international city where you've placed us. Thank you for this congregation made up of many different nationalities and cultures. Thank you that because of Jesus we're united. Thank you that we belong together as your people. And so we ask as we read these simple exhortations from Paul to a local church that this will also be right in the heart of the church on the way here in Bradford. That we'll have big hearts and minds as we pray for all, as we pray around the world, and as we proclaim the good news to those across the street or in other parts of the globe. Bless our service, our worship, our mission, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.